We're now getting into the era of the rights, which uh, John Aykroyd delivered us at the beginning of that era. Um, our heads may be spinning with uh, esoteric concepts, but we're ready now to uh, hear something about first the rights themselves and their immediate contemporaries, um, and secondly, the doings of the rights in the in that famous year when they managed to fly. And these two presentations are going to be made appropriately by uh, American authors. Uh, they've already been welcomed by our president, but let me reiterate that. The first one is Dr. Dick Hallian, who was until very recently the official USAF historian. He's now stepped out of that post, I understand, but he's doing all sorts of things for USAF still. He is um, a very well-recognized aerospace historian, uh, an international reputation. He was a founding curator of the National Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian, in Washington, which many of us, I'm sure, like me, made a track for when we've been over there. Uh, visiting professor at the Army War College and the Smithsonian, and he is the author of numerous books and papers on aerospace history. Um, the most recent one, in fact, I saw him deliver personally to our library just yesterday. He presented our librarian with a copy of his latest book, Taking Flight, Inventing the Aerial Age, and I had a quick glance at it, and it certainly looks a very fine book. So I'll invite Dr. Hallian now to talk to us about the uh, background to the rights achievement. Well, first, let me say right off that it's a very great honor to be here, uh, to be invited to uh, present at the Royal Aeronautical Society, given the history of the society and the importance that this society has uh, played uh, the important role that it's played in the history of, of aerospace development uh, is itself uh, is itself something that I think one will uh, always look uh, back on with uh, with a great deal of uh, pleasure. Uh, beyond that, to uh, follow in in the wake of uh, people like John Aykroyd is ex extraordinarily daunting. Uh, he got up and said that uh, he was going to go through 2,000 years of history in about 30 minutes, and he he achieved it, I think, in absolutely magnificent form. And I, I would uh, second that those of you that haven't seen his uh, articles that he's done to date uh, are really in for a treat because he's, he does uh, some remarkable work. We're all heirs, if you will, of a, <clears throat> an interest in aviation that goes back really to the dawn of time. You know, if we think about the, the early mythic history of flight, the classic, of course, we all refer to Daedalus and Icarus. Icarus being the first victim of structural failure due to thermodynamic effects, <laughs> getting waxed in the process. 
I was told by Frank I should start off with a joke, so I, I, I have to warn you, that's my one joke. So, <laughs> so we're in trouble from now on. The, uh, what I found uh, very interesting in, in the way this program came together uh, and, and the structure of it was uh, uh, the, the very wise decision to start off with a survey paper of the type that John did. Because this year, uh, obviously, the attention will be focused on the Wright brothers and their contributions to flight. But of course, the Wright brothers did not work in isolation, and the Wright brothers were not ignorant of what went on before. The Wright brothers were very much the inheritors and, and the expanders upon a legacy of interest in aeronautics that went back for centuries. And it's very important to, to root that, I think, in, in, in people's minds. Because to the public at large, you know, we think of the invention of the airplane, we think of the Wright brothers as, as well we should, but there's a lot more to the story. And so when you go back and you, and you, for example, pick up on the work of people like Cayley and Pinard and people of that sort, uh, and then including the ones that, that unfortunately were not crowned by success, uh, but who, who struggled with, with unsuccessful programs, ADAIR, for example, people of that sort, it's well worth doing. What I find interesting in looking at the uh, development of flight is the transition that occurred in the 1890s, uh, where you had the torch passed for a brief period of time to the United States, and you had the rights then functioning very successfully uh, in, in that particular time period. Uh, it's very interesting, of course, then to follow up on this and see what happens. In fact, it's more interesting to me to see what happens after the rights invent the airplane, because you see very quickly that the United States loses its aeronautical competitiveness so that by World War I, we're all flying other people's airplanes, so to speak. And that story is really almost more interesting, uh, I think, than, than actually creating the airplane itself. Uh, it leads me to conclude, or at least to have concluded in my own mind, that had the rights not existed, we would have had the airplane invented by 1910, likely in France. That there was a, there was a moment there, there was a moment there that the rights seized upon when you had the transfer of a European aeronautical tradition from Europe to America, but it was a fleeting moment, and fortunately for the Wrights and the United States, we were able to take advantage of that at the time. And the critical year here is really 1896. Now, the United States obviously was a relatively new country, and at the end of the 19th century, we were seeing a tremendous acceleration in the pace and the nature of American technology. We can see this in just, uh, uh, one or two little statistics and, and things we can mention. If you look at patents, for example, we had gone from 700 patents issued in 1846, the same year that Congress establishes the uh, Smithsonian Institution, really a, a landmark event in the, in the support of science and technology in the United States, to over 22,000 patents per year by the end of that century. So we were already seeing this shift of the United States to an industrial nation. Uh, much as you had seen in the classic industrial revolution in England, we saw uh, in the late 19th century the enshrinement of scientists, but particularly technologists, in, in the pantheon of popular heroes, so to speak. And one of the key events here was the Centennial International Exhibition in Philadelphia in 1876. There was one particular exhibit, the so-called coreless steam engine, which was unadorned, 
Uh, it was just brute technological force, very creatively done, that really indicated to many people this power, strength, uh, uh, endurance, solidity that, that people would come to associate with the United States and nation rich in resources and things of that sort. Now, with this came a technological optimism in American society, and this was particularly evident as we approached the turn of the century. There was a, a remarkable journalist named Henry Litchfield West who noted that if we took a look at the rates of mobility that we had entered the 19th century moving at six miles an hour, the speed of an animal-pulled vehicle, and we entered the 20th century at the speed of 60 miles an hour, the speed of a steam locomotive, and he prophesied, might we enter the 21st at the speed of 600 miles an hour? Well, of course, we did, thanks to uh, intercontinental air transportation. And I would hope, although I'm not quite certain we'll get that point, but I'd like to see that continue in very sort of rudimentary fashion. So we enter the next century, maybe at 6,000 miles an hour, speed of a hypersonic vehicle. So we have to get cracking, to say the least. But moving right along, he, he did leave in an article a statement that I thought that was quite interesting. He said, the great discoveries of the coming century in the matter of transportation will be in the navigation of the air. The time is not far distant when aerial cars will ply between great centers of population, arriving and departing upon fixed schedules and carrying their human cargoes. Aerial navigation seems to be the only method now apparent by which time and space can be more completely annihilated than it is at present. And that, of course, very much uh, came to be the case. Now, what's interesting is if you take a look at other futurists who were working at the time, for example, H.G. Wells, you find that there was, this, there was this climate of thought that a revolution might well occur in aeronautics. For example, we had already seen the light of the near revolution, and we had already seen the development of the first crude, small-powered airships. We think of Santos Dumont. Uh, we think earlier of uh, Reynard and Krebs, you know, people like that. But when these futurists talked about flight, even though they, they saw it perhaps occurring over the next several decades and they listed the pioneers working in the field, they tended to concentrate on the classic names, what were already the classic names, Lilienthal, Pilcher, Maxim, Chanute in the United States, but the rights were missed completely. The rights were working in isolation, but they were keeping very close contact with what was going on in the world of aeronautics, and yet they were working in such a, a quiet fashion that when they finally leapt upon the scene, uh, it, would be, it would be really with, uh, with some revolutionary effect. Now, Peter Jacob and I had a challenge when we were thinking about how we were going to put our papers together here, because Peter, uh, who has done uh, some very, very fine work tracing the work of the Wright brothers as engineers, Peter wanted very much to go into that story. And so we decided that I would concentrate basically on the background of the rights. I'll talk a little bit about the rights in passing toward the end of my presentation, setting the stage for them arriving at Kitty Hawk and starting their work. And then Peter will go much more into the rights as engineers. So I'd like to devote uh, much of my attention to looking at uh, two other American pioneers and some related folks, and that's Octave Chanute and uh, Samuel Langley, because these are two individuals that really had a profound impact upon American aeronautics and, for that matter, upon the work of the Wrights themselves. Octave Chanute, born in 1832, he was the son of a history professor at the Collège Royal de France, and he emigrated with his parents 
to Louisiana, where his father took up another academic position. Now, Chanute uh, grew up in a very intellectually oriented household and had very strong interests in mechanics and uh, what we would consider today engineering. He embarked upon a career that eventually saw him become a, an immensely successful uh, designer of uh, major civil engineering projects, bridges, stockyards, railways. And we see this in the recognition his colleagues showered upon him, particularly by installing him as president of the American Society of Civil Engineers. Now, he harbored something that he really did like to keep secret, largely because he was concerned about what we might see as the anti-intellectual climate of the day, if you will, and that is he was very, very interested in aeronautics. And his interest in aeronautics had been triggered, really, on a trip he had taken to France in 1875, where he had become aware of the work of Pinard and Wenham and others. In 1883, he entered semi-retirement, and at this point, he felt that he could become much more open about his interests. And uh, he started writing a series of articles. The first of these appeared in 1891 for the American Engineer and Railroad Journal, where he essentially uh, assessed the field of aeronautical research and development and where it had been, where it was going. Uh, this led eventually, in 18, uh, eventually it led to a book, of course, Progress in Flying Machines, one of the classic texts that we have in, in the uh, early history of aeronautics. But in 1894, in conjunction with a uh, young physicist, Albert Francis Zahm, uh, it led to an international aeronautical conference uh, that was held uh, in, in Chicago. Now, if we take a look at Zahm, we find here one of the more controversial people in the, in the history of American aviation. A lot of historians have taken a look at Zahm, particularly his role in the, the Curtis Wright patent dispute uh, and, and the uh, ugliness that involved trying to take the Langley Aerodrome and modify it, crudely modify it, as Philip Jarrett certainly knows from some of his own brilliant work, uh, to try to win a, a court advantage over the rights. This caused Zahm, in many ways, uh, his work to be uh, denigrated and Zahm himself to be attacked. But if we take a look at Zahm, we find that he was a very influential fellow and, and a man of, of some great accomplishment himself. He was an avid model builder and experimenter, and he represented really the increasing application uh, that we would see of young, scientifically trained and engineering trained professionals uh, to the aeronautic, uh, aeronautic world. Zahm was the one who actually conceived holding this conference, and if we take a look at the the range of papers that were presented and the number of people uh, who were there, you had Wenham, uh, you had papers by Wenham, you had presentations uh, uh, involving Langley, Lawrence Hargrave, Mouillard, Edward Huffaker, John Montgomery, Chanute and Zahm themselves. We see here that this was really a milestone event. It was a, it was a line in the sand, to use a, a modern expression, really setting forth where people uh, thought aeronautics was going. And it brought to the larger world the fact that aeronautics was no longer merely the stuff of myth or the stuff of cranks. And Chanute made reference to this in his opening remarks. He said, flight to this point has hitherto been associated with failure. Its advocates viewed as eccentric, to speak frankly, as cranks. And then he pointed out that if you took a look at the history of ballooning and developments since the invention of the balloon in 1783, and particularly developments in heavier-than-air flying, 
that, that uh, clearly we were heading down a road where we could expect some changes very, very rapidly. He emphasized the importance, and I think this was key to the ultimate success of the rights, he emphasized the importance of an integrated approach to, uh, to seeking uh, solutions to the problem of flight. He said, for example, it is a mistake to suppose that the problem of aviation is a single problem. In point of fact, it involves many problems, each to be separately solved, and these solutions then to be combined. These problems pertain to the motor, to the propelling instrument, to the form, extent, texture, and construction of the sustaining surfaces, to maintenance of the equipose, in other words, stability, to the methods of getting underway, of steering the apparatus in the air, and of alighting safely. They each constitute one problem involving one or more solutions to be subsequently combined. Now, after the conference concluded, Chanute's own book, Progress in Flying Machines, appeared. But Chanute was not alone in his popularization of flight. His own work in this regard coincided with that of another individual that, that uh, we've all heard of, James Means. Now, James Means <coughs> uh, wrote a, uh, edited, I should say, a series of annuals. Unfortunately, he had to eventually suspend publication of these annuals because it was simply too expensive to do it. But Means Annuals, which came out over several years in the late 1890s, coupled with Chanute's progress in flying machines, if you take a look at these two, they've really been likened, not without justification, if you will, to the Old and New Testament, the, the former constituting a historical record, if you will, and a lot of the state of current work and direction. Uh, Means, uh, in particular, uh, introduced many pioneers to the insights and the key work of, of other pioneers like Cayley, Wenham, Maxim, Lilienthal, Herring, and Chanute. Uh, so we take a look at these two, we take a look at these two individuals, and they really build an information nexus, an information nexus that was very, very important and would prove to be very important upon the work of the rights themselves. Now, where we see a difference with Chanute is that unlike people who simply tried to build some crude vehicle and leap into the air or, or had one uh, constant idea they wished to pursue and didn't pursue it very well or who were content merely to do theoretical study, we see that Chanute, like Lilienthal, came very much from what the late Charles Gibbs Smith, an honorary companion of this society and, and a, obviously the, I think the finest of all historians who dealt with, with early flight, what the late Charles Gibbs Smith called the Airman School. You know, these were individuals who recognized that the critical path to developing a successful aircraft would involve creative and actual flight testing and flight research. And Chanute partnered himself with Augustus Herring, a well-to-do Georgian who experimented with copies of the Lilienthal gliders. Chanute, because of his engineering background, had a more practical structural outlook than any of the pre-right pioneers. You know, we take a look at a lot of these earlier pioneers, Adair, people like that, Lilienthal himself, we find that, and, and indeed this is a trend that goes back really to Da Vinci, we find people that were so bird and bat imitative that the aeronautical concepts and constructs that they came up with were innately uh, flawed. You know, you, you think, for example, of the Avion 3, which you can see if you go to Paris, and you, you see a vehicle here that's a, grot a grotesque mechanical bat, you know, probably the best example of this sort of thing. 
Lilienthal him, himself had chosen a bird-like approach using multiple radiating wing spas. You can think of the complexities trying to deal with structuring, uh, uh, with the structural design of a vehicle of that concept. Chanute instead recognized the value of the purity of line, particularly the value of the truss. Now, he did not immediately leap into the field with development uh, with, with application of the, of the Pratt truss. He experimented with a variety of truss approaches, drawing on the work of Howe, Whipple, and then Caleb Pratt. And when he first, uh, to, to show that his ideas on a flight vehicle was still relatively immature, when he first came to a flight vehicle, he developed a, uh, a very ungainly looking craft called the Katie Did. It had uh, a whole series of wings arranged in six different pairs, and these were pivoted to move back and forth so that he could have some sort of uh, innate uh, stability in the machine, inherent stability. And of course, he uh, also adopted the same approach that we saw with Lilienthal, and that is the idea of, abs of, of shifting body weight as well uh, to, to control this vehicle. In June 1896, shortly before Lilienthal himself was killed, Chanute moves into uh, the flight test phase, and, and the vehicle performs basically terribly. At this point, uh, Chanute could have backed away, but fortunately, there was another concept that offered much greater promise, uh, that, that offered much greater promise, and this was a Chanute-Herring collaboration. It was a so-called three-surface glider. In other words, it was a triplane. And it improved uh, this, this particular glider in, in aviation history, I don't think has built, really been recognized the significance it had because it improved an important design for several reasons. First, it had a very simple, uncomplicated straight line structure. It anticipated the design of the Wright's own aircraft a half decade later. Uh, in contrast to the numerous surfaces or aero curves, as, as Chanute called them, that he had with the Katy did, it had just three simple wings, uh, superposed one above the other. The wings themselves had a had a uh, a uh, constant uh, approach where they had the the equivalent span and cord one surface to the other. And it had a tail boom that uh, Herring had designed that was spring-loaded that was really a combined horizontal surface and then, of course, a vertical rudder to give the craft uh, some form of automatic and self-restoring stability. It was logically thought out, and it signaled at once that Chanute and Herring had a clearer and better idea of aerodynamic design of a vehicle, certainly than the already venerated Lilienthal and any of their predecessors. Now, at this point, they, they uh, avoided disaster uh, via nature because in August of 1896, at their, at their test camp on the Great Lakes, a tornado passed by. It, it was some sort of severe windstorm. Schnitt thought it was a tornado. And from his description, I think that's probably correct. And the camp was basically destroyed. Fortunately, uh, the gliders were not uh, terribly damaged, and so uh, Chanute was able to undertake flight testing of this, uh, of this machine with uh, several pil uh, pilots that he had. And it, it showed uh, absolutely superb performance. He was getting 350-foot glides, uh, 14 seconds, a gliding descent of 5.75 to 1. Clearly, these are very high-performance machines by the standards of the day. 
What happened as a result of this is we saw the ushering in of an era in aircraft design, and that was the era of the light, straightforward, strong, uncomplicated, and hence easily analyzed structure that quickly brought to an end the convoluted curves and framing of these older bird and bat imitative attempts that we had seen uh, before. So August 1896, when Chanute really uh, gets into uh, dramatic uh, flight test results with this glider of his and herring, really constitutes, in my view, a month of some mixed uh, blessings and, and, and tragedies. You have, of course, the loss of Lilienthal right off, proving that winged flight would be every bit as dangerous as lighter than air flight. And then you have the near-disastrous windstorm. But after you see that, you see really in that month, that's the month when you see the passing of this torch of European practice and interest in aviation to the United States. True, in Europe, you still have the continuation of work with people like Percy Pilcher, a Lilienthal disciple. You have some lingering work uh, and some lingering thought by Maxim, although he's basically uh, stepping away from it due to a whole series of personal challenges and problems in the family and so like this and, and, and other issues that are coming there. But basically, at this point, this is when we see the handoff to the United States. Now, France had gone through in the 1870s and 80s and into the 90s, France had gone through an interesting period of time when it, it looked briefly like we might see the aeronautical revolution take place in France. Unfortunately, the people who carried on the work after Alphonse Pinard and his tragic suicide uh, were not really up to the task. And we could have had that same moment occur in American aeronautics at that same time period. Uh, if we take a look at Langley, we see the astronomer here as aircraft designer. And Langley's own work, of course, was, was ultimately crowned uh, with a failure. The, uh, the, tragic, the tragic aspect of Langley's work was that he had, uh, he had an, an overemphasis on lift and power, but he had no real appreciation for structures, as you see with Chanute, and he had no real appreciation whatsoever for the aeronautical environment. You know, if you think about the controllability of that vehicle, uh, had he actually, with his great aerodrome, had we actually gotten to the point where Langley uh, got that to fly successfully off a houseboat, one wonders what would have happened to his pilot operator, uh, indeed, as the vehicle uh, landed. It had no provisions whatsoever for control. It had no real provisions uh, for landing either. Langley was much more successful as a maker of uh, something that uh, John Aykroyd referred to, and that was the small... Uh, uh, that was the small model. And we certainly saw this in 1896 when he launched his aerodrome number five, which is now in the collections of the Air and Space Museum, which over the, a minute and a half makes a flight of over 3,000 feet, a small steam-powered model, uh, demonstrating inherent stability and also demonstrating as well uh, that you could get a powered aircraft to move through the air. Now, Pinot had shown this with his rubber band powered planophore in 1871. So Langley carried this a step further. So that was, you know, actually, if you take a look at it, uh, had Langley quit the field at that point, he would have been ahead, certainly in terms of his historical reputation. Those would have been milestone uh, contributions. And Chanute himself remarked it would have been far better, quote, it would have been far better for Mr. Langley's happiness and reputation if he had terminated his experiments with the demonstration in 1896 that artificial flight was possible. Unfortunately, uh, thanks to a 
mix of, of technology push and requirements pull, you had the uh, Spanish-American War come along, and with it the desire to, of course, develop a, a military vehicle out of Langley's aircraft. That was not, in fact, the first time, uh, although many people think it was, not the first time that a government applied money to, uh, to develop a military airplane. That honor actually uh, goes to France when, uh, after the early flights of, of Adair, the early flight attempts of Adair with this EOL, uh, monoplane, we saw uh, Charles-Louis de Freycinet, the president of France uh, and minister of defense, holding both positions, put money into, uh, into Adair's uh, later work. But as it was, eventually the federal government put approximately what we would consider $1 million today in, in funding, $50,000 at the time, into the development of a large-scale uh, Langley aerodrome. And of course, that machine went through its own convoluted history. Langley actually approached Adair at one point to see if, uh, to, to get a better understanding about Adair's steam-powered engines and whether you could apply steam power to his machine. And then, of course, he eventually settled on a very well-thought-out 52-horsepower engine, internal combustion engine, uh, the so-called Manley Balzer engine, which powered the actual flight vehicle. And eventually, in 1903, we have, uh, we have this all come together and we have two notable flight attempts, uh, October 7, 1903, and then of course on December 8, 1903. And we saw, uh, in, in John's paper, you saw the two classic results of that. In one case, if we, uh, snags a portion of the launching mechanism, slides into the Potomac, as the Washington Post said, like a handful of mortar. And then in 1908, you saw the far more dramatic pitch up failure of the rear wing. Manly hanging on for dear life between the two spinning props and goes underwater and he, he nearly, uh, he nearly drowns. What happened after, uh, the Langley disaster, which, uh, which, uh, was headlined in the Washington Post, buzzed a wreck, Langley hopes dashed. Uh, what happened after that was, of course, the federal government turned away in the United States away from aviation for quite a while. And that actually hurt the rights when they were trying to sell their aircraft to the federal government later. Langley, as a uh, noted member of the American science community, uh, Langley was a, a figure of such importance that if he couldn't make this work, then obviously there was something innately wrong about the whole uh, prospects of flight. And indeed, Simon Newcomb, an astronomer himself and a well-known critic of flight said, may not our mechanicians in like manner be ultimately forced to admit that aerial flight is one of the great class of problems with which man can never cope and give up all attempts to grapple with? Well, if you take a look at, at uh, Newcomb, and of course we think of, we think of Lord Kelvin, for example, after, after Lilienthal remarking about that he doesn't have a small, small acute of faith in any form of aerial navigation other than ballooning, you know, we take a look at these individuals and we're really surprised that for individuals that were so gifted in so many other ways, they were blind to this revolution that was occurring right around the corner. There's some other things here that play a role, though. Uh, Kelvin had been very unimpressed with, with Langley's presentations when Langley came to the United Kingdom, had caught him out, in fact, in some serious mathematical errors. And if we take a look at Newcomb, I think there was probably a personal factor there. I, my, my personal feeling is that Simon Newcomb saw Langley as a rival. Uh, perhaps they were even rivals uh, to become uh, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. And of course, this all played its, uh, its own little ugly uh, 
its ugly role in, in the subsequent history of American aviation. And at this point, we come to the Wright brothers. There's a lot, of course, uh, uh, that, that you will be seeing this year in the Wrights, their family background. I think the most, the, uh, and, and of course, uh, speaking before this kind of audience where you're, you're sophisticated about the history of aeronautics, you recognize the falsehood in this. I think the popular myth, of course, is the Wrights, the two guys who are basically yokels out in the Midwest of the United States. They happen to turn very easily from making bicycles and making airplanes with hardly a thought, you know, just using homespun Yankee engineering, you know, the little craft tradition. Golly, I think we ought to make an airplane. That sounds like a good idea to me, all but, you know, and then they're off and running. <clears throat> now, you know, there's, there's just enough truth in their background that, that it muddies the water. They came from, they came from a main, uh, a mainstream white Anglo-Saxon Protestant rural culture in the United States. Uh, their father was a very unbending, inflexible, and contentious bishop in a small little church, the Church of the United Brethren in Christ. Uh, their background was Puritan English and Dutch stock uh, with a touch of German thrown in. And uh, their mother uh, came from German-Swiss roots. Their mother, interestingly enough, seems to have had a very strong interest in technology, and, and certainly in mathematics, and this played a role itself in the education of, of uh, the children. The children, uh, Wilbur and Orville, uh, they got along very well, and particularly with their sister Catherine, more so than with other members of the family. They evinced very little interest in leaving, uh, leaving the family home. Uh, they, this reflected, I think, a number of things. It reflected the economic circumstances in the United States, the Depression circumstances of the 1890s. I think it also reflected the unsettled nature of the family. Uh, they had made 12 moves in 25 years uh, going around, largely because of church business. They were profoundly gifted by the standards of the day, even though they, uh, uh, even though the two of them did not finish what we in America call a high school or secondary school education. They read voraciously across the fields of science, literature, the arts, history, and philosophy. They were very much encouraged in this by their mother, who had studied literature at Hotsville College, although she herself had not completed a degree. They, profess, uh, they uh, possess profound scientific uh, insight, a sure grasp, uh, grasp of mathematics, excellent analytical skills, and an excellent writing style. And they did something that we don't see really with other, with other pioneers, certainly to the extent that we see it with the rights, and that is they documented every single thing they did. To give you an appreciation of this, all you have to do is take a look at the classic compilation by Marvin McFarland of the Wright Brothers' papers, or more recently, uh, a, a companion work by Rick Young, P by Peter Jacob and Rick Young, that looks at their published writings, and you see how thoroughly they were concerned that everything they do really be documented. Their interest in flight began actually as children in 1878, when their father brought home a uh, small uh, bat, so to speak, a flying mechanical toy of the type first pioneered by Alphonse Pinard in France in the uh, early 1870s. And although it is, it is true that the Wrights started out in the bicycle business, they were also small-town newspaper people. They had an interest in possibly moving into the automotive field. And it was really because of this experience 
that they recalled as children and recollected as, uh, from their childhood playing with this bat, that they retained enough of an interest in flight and followed the work as, as much as they could learn of people like Maxim and Lilienthal that uh, impelled them, rather than enter the automotive field, to enter the field of aeronautics. Now, what is interesting to me is all of this might have come to grief had it not been for a key individual that too little attention has been paid to. And this is the assistant secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, a man named Richard Rathbun. Rathbun was the recipient of a letter that Wilbur Wright wrote to the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in uh, May of 1899, in which they requested some assistance. And it had this famous quote that we've all heard, I wish to avail myself of all that is already known, and then, if possible, add my might to help on the future worker who will attain final success. What's very interesting here is that Rathbun received this letter on a Friday. He was a member of the Cosmos Club. He was a naturalist. He was one of the uh, most uh, distinguished people in the field of paleontology in the United States. And he could very easily have simply dumped it in a waste paper basket. Instead, he directed that the staff uh, reply to it and get a package of materials to him. And interestingly enough, if you really think of the rights themselves and how torn they were between working in various mechanical fields, either the field of general invention or going into automotive work, he really held, I think, at that moment, the fate of American aviation in his hands. Had he not responded in the positive fashion that he did, because the rights themselves certainly uh, recollected that this work was extremely important, that his contribution was extremely important to them, uh, we might have seen the rights. We might have seen the rights remove themselves from the field. Interestingly enough, Rathbun himself never seems to have realized what he did when he died in 1918. Very suddenly, uh, there was no mention in any of the scientific or technical journals that reported on his death as a major figure in American science and technology at that time of his work uh, in supporting the rights. And he himself seems not to have recollected that he actually did this. You know, so in, the, in this centenary of flight, I think we need to raise a glass in, the, uh, in honor of this individual who just did his work very competently. He had no interest in flight, but this was a person approaching his institution, seeking some information for whatever reason, and he went out and made sure the job was done. I think that's really remarkable. Now, Peter will talk to you in very great detail on how the rights function as engineers. But I would just like to point out a couple of things that, uh, in, in very brief closing that, that, uh, that I find particularly interesting. In 1923, the Swiss architect Le Corbusier remarked that the aeroplane mobilized invention, intelligence, and daring, imagination, and cold reason, the same spirit, he said, that built the Parthenon. You really see this in the Wrights. The Wrights had an extraordinary ability, when you take a look at their writings, to cut to the heart of a design problem, find a simple and rational solution, pursue it vigorously to completion, and then integrate it with other solutions to other challenges, and then the whole of that, putting the whole of that together to comprise a successful aeroplane. It really, it really filled, in many ways, that notion that we saw in integration from Chanute and the idea of integrating problem solving across a variety of fields. If we look at how they approached flight, we see that what they basically emphasized was, first of all, control. All else was secondary to this. They recognized the importance, as I mentioned, of integrating these diverse technologies. And then, like Chanute and Lilienthal, they recognized 
that you had to go beyond this into actual flight testing and flight research. I go into this in more detail in the paper, uh, and uh, I, I won't make any further comments on it, except to just leave you with a quote from Wilbur Wright that I think expresses this philosophy very well. Speaking in Chicago before the Western Society of Engineers, Wilbur Wright said, there are two ways of learning how to ride a fractious horse. One is to get on him and learn by actual practice, and the other is to sit on a fence and watch the beast. It is very much the same in learning to ride a flying machine. If you are looking for perfect safety, you will do well to sit on the fence and watch the birds. But if you really wish to learn, you must mount a machine and become acquainted with its tricks by actual trial. They exemplified this airman's philosophy, the belief that the practitioner had to have actual experimentation to accompany theory. Now, I would just like to say that, uh, that after contacting Chanute, uh, who gave them advice that if they were building flying vehicles, they should seek sapwood, clear, straight-grained, and thoroughly seasoned, after contacting Chanute, after refining their ideas, Peter will give you much more information on this, uh, they actually felt they were at the point where they could embark upon their flying career. And so we saw the shift of their work from uh, Dayton, Ohio, in the off-season, so to speak, in the flight test season, to move down to Kitty Hawk. In 1524, Kitty Hawk had been visited by the great Italian explorer, Giovanni de Verrazzano. He stopped very briefly. His uh, sailors were confronted by a native who thrust a burning stick towards them. Uh, it was quite likely the native was smoking tobacco. The French fired a musket at him. Uh, and, of course, this seems to me to be the first time that uh, an individual learned that smoking, indeed, could be hazardous to your health. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, he wasn't hit. <clears throat> so that's how Western technology first came to Kitty Hawk. In September 1900, 376 years later, you have the Wright brothers trotting Kitty Hawk's Beach for the first time. Behind them, you had this entire legacy of dreams and disappointments that really went back to the dawn of time. Ahead of them, you had a future of extraordinary challenge, but also extraordinary triumph. Thanks very much. Thank you, very, Thank you very much, Dick. Yeah. I'm sure you can, you recognize by the, the strength of the applause that that was much appreciated. I think there were many things in there that one can pick up on. I'll just mention one from the chair, and that is the point you made early on about uh, your interest and the, the fact that you think it is really a very important issue, how uh, America got ahead with the rights, um, and before the rights, and then, as it were, lost it later. I think that's a very interesting area. Um, but I mention it now uh, because I think we should reserve our discussion of that in any depth for this afternoon. So if anybody wanted to sort of raise questions now or comments, I would ask you to bring those forward this afternoon. And, and I'll be happy to take that on this afternoon because it's, very, it's a very interesting yes. story, I think. Well, we'll have this, this general discussion with all of us up at the end of the afternoon, but I'm sure it will come up quite strongly. Um, now, any, any points, any questions? Yes. Uh, Mike Brewer, I'm afraid I have to admit to being chairman of the Rotorcraft Committee, but that's another story. 
Um, you mentioned right at the end of your presentation Kitty Hawk. Why Kitty Hawk when there must have been other places in the United States which were probably more suitable? It's an, it's an interesting business. They, uh, the, the, the short answer is they wrote to the Weather Bureau, and the Weather Bureau said if you wanted to look where you had the steadiest winds and the greatest wind, that uh, Kitty Hawk was the best locale. Uh, they had thought, actually, of flying on the, on the shores of the Great Lakes like uh, Chanute had. I think, actually, they could have carried that off. But they really, uh, ultimately, they really did enjoy working in that Kitty Hawk environment. They had a very uh, supportive relationship with the locals, and uh, it was remote. Uh, they were very private and, and very sensitive about their work. And uh, I, I think the combination of the locale, the fact that you had very strong and steady winds, uh, and, and the fact that it was recommended by the Weather Bureau uh, really counted a lot. And then after their first experiences there, they really never looked back. From that point on, Kitty Hawk was the place to go. I would stress, you know, in this 100th anniversary year, we're going to see an awful lot of footage of Kitty Hawk. It doesn't look anything now like it did then. Uh, the, for one thing, the hill that they were flying from was nothing more really than a sand dune, you know, and of course sand dunes shift. So when you see all this, uh, you know, grassy uh, uh, slope area and things like this, uh, you know, what you're doing is you're, in, in your mind, you're locking in the loft lines of the terrain, so to speak, but that's all you're really seeing. Right, thank you. Yes. Uh, Chairman, thank you. Uh, we had a brilliant uh, survey of the field. I have two comments and one question. Um, first comment is, I think it's appropriate to note in England that the Smithsonian itself was founded by a bequest from a disappointed Englishman. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Called Smithson. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. Um, the second point is that uh, I am a, an avowed Aristotelian. Mm -hmm. I still believe that if you want to move things, you have to push them. And that may be a bad C principle of, of dynamics, but uh, it certainly works in human behavior. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It applies to governments, to boards of directors, and even sometimes the Royal Aeronautical Society. <laughs> Chairman, I am not an historian, but occasionally I get close to it by reading newspapers. And I have a question, hoping that somebody during today will be able to place it into perspective. It's a quote from the Daily Telegraph of the 31st of March this year. That's how old my reading is. The people in New Zealand are paying homage to the memory of Richard Pierce, right. a farmer who flew more than 150 yards at an altitude of 12 feet on March the 31st, 1903, before his homemade aircraft dumped him in a gorse hedge, breaking his collarbone. Knowing that failures are as important as successes, all I ask is, during today, could some kind person place that into historical perspective? Thank I'll, you. I'll make a comment. Uh, I'll make several comments on what you said, and, it was, and, and what you said was intriguing in all counts. Uh, the greatest living expert on Richard Pierce is sitting in the front row, and he's in his subdued uh, day-glow red jacket here. Uh, <laughs> Philip, Philip Jarrett. Philip is, is a boon companion and is a wonderful source of information on all these, these uh, claims. Now, uh, Pierce did good work, and he was a good man, and he is not responsible himself for the 
the uh, claims that have been put, put forth on his behalf. It's, it's a lot like the Samuel Langley story. Langley, the rights in Langley had the greatest, res- the, the rights had the greatest respect for Samuel Langley and, and were very kind and gracious in their comments about him always. But Langley's supporters simply went too far in claiming what he did. And that's, that's true for the case of Pierce. It's true for the case of Clemente Dare. It's, it's true for, for the more extreme supporters of Lawrence Hargrave, all these others. But Philip can give you much more information on it than I can. The other two comments, uh, uh, the other comment I, I have to make is uh, you are quite right in your comment about the Smithsonian Institution. The, Smithsonian, the creation of the Smithsonian was really a remarkable event. And it, it was, of course, uh, thanks to a, a bequest from James Smithson, who felt that he hadn't been uh, honored and treated properly over here. But the thing that's very interesting is after we got that huge pot of money in the United States uh, in the 1820s, we dithered with it all through the 1830s and into the 1840s. And it was only after John Quincy Adams and several others recognized that this money was, was going to be basically frittered away or totally wasted that uh, we, we put together a comprehensive plan for what became the Smithsonian Institution. There were all kinds of tail-chasing debates. Should it be a library? Should it be a zoo? Should it be a series of grants to states? Should it be a scientific institution? Should it be a museum? Well, eventually it became all of those things. But that's exactly right. The roots there, the roots there were very, very solidly uh, here in the UK. Thank you. Uh, could you please give your name for the record? The questioner. Who, me? Yes. Harold Kaplan. I thought it was, yes. Harold Kaplan for the record there. Yes, next. Yes, over there. Chris Orlibar, former Concord pilot and in mourning because of the decision. Yes. (laughs) Aren't we all? But my question isn't about supersonics. It's about why the Wright brothers became bicycle makers. Because after all, in the evolution of organisms or man-made artifacts, it's always a question of who's most likely to invent what. Mm -hmm. Now, being a bicycle maker, of course, you're good with lightweight machinery, Mm -hmm. and you don't fear instability. Right. My (laughs) question really is, when did they and why did they decide to become bicycle makers? Did they foresee foresee the attributes required by aeroplane inventors? That's that's an... uh, That last portion of the question is an interesting one. Now, there's been a, an excellent biography in the Wright Brothers that, that is unlikely to be equaled by Tom Crouch called The Bishop's Boys, wonderful book. Uh, when you read that, you find that there was a tremendous bicycle craze in the United States in the 1890s. It, it, it was almost like the PC craze for computers today, and many, many people entered the field. Uh, so this was, this was a field to go uh, into. The Wrights never seemed to evince an interest in heavy, uh, heavy machine fabrication but they, uh, and heavy industrial fabrication, but they were very interested in precisely what you mentioned, the idea of lightweight structures and speed. And I also suspect that, uh, as, you, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the fact that they were working with bicycles gave them much more confidence to addressing the problems of powered flight. In particular, the Wrights really recognize more than other people that when you are flying an aircraft, you're, mention, uh, you're moving in a three-dimensional environment. 
And they recognize, for example, that you are, you are not making flat turns. You are banking into turns. And of course, if you think about how you actually, don't think about this too much if you're riding a bike, you'll get in some serious problems. But if you just sort of take it as an article of faith and then sit down over a glass and think about it, uh, when you're actually maneuvering a bicycle, you're really actually, uh, you're actually really moving in three dimensions if you think of how you bank into a turn and things of that sort. You know. By the way, I, if I had uh, realized you were in the audience, I would have worn a black ribbon in, in commemoration of Concord myself. <laughs> you know, it's really quite remarkable when you think that our two supersonic cruising aircraft, routinely supersonic cruising aircraft, the SR-71 and, and soon-to-be Concorde and now a thing of the past, and of course we'll have a little bit of this with the F-22, but it's not quite the same thing. Forgive that intrusion into the present. Perhaps that's the subject of another, another conference like this in a year or two, and we can, we can uh, ask ourselves such questions. Yes, Paul. Thank you. Um, excellent talk. Uh, my name is Paul Chapman. Um, one, of the, uh, one, of, one of the very interesting aspects of, of, of the Wright brothers and, and the, if you like, the development of aeroplanes um, is where the design requirements come from. My background has been in conceptual design through, throughout my life, and I find that very interesting. There seem to be two key drivers, if you like, for design requirements for, for the, um, the aeronautical people of that period. One was the, the military need, mm -hmm. which is driven from military observation coming from, from balloons. Right. And I think that's what, that's what drove Cody on. Right. The other one was the, the, the structural integrity side. Um, which I think was driven from the meteorological, meteorological work um, of Hargrave and pushed on by uh, Lawrence Roach mm -hmm. at the Blue Hill, and also tied, that tied up with um, uh, James Means and so on. Mm -hmm. Have you got any comments on the, the meteorological um, side, if you like, that, 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 drove, that drove on the, um, the design aspects of the, of the aeroplane, how, how that tied together? I... I don't actually. I haven't seen that connection, and I would be interested in looking into it. And so thanks very much for the suggestion to look in that direction. What I, what I do see, certainly in the American experience, is uh, very much more the very strong connection between civil engineering and, uh, in fact, more from civil engineering than mechanical engineering practice, interestingly enough, into the design of aircraft. And that's largely when you see this whole emphasis toward trusses, regular, regularity of, of uh, prediction, loads prediction, things of this sort. Um, your, your first comment's a very intriguing one uh, on military requirements, and, and I, I would look at it in this way. I'm struck by the fact that even to the present day, when you take a look at the first use of an aerospace system, thinking first of the balloon, next of the airplane, next of the spacecraft, that at roughly a century apart, the first application of all of these have been for observation. And it makes perfect sense because if you think about it, military affairs, there's really only three things you're concerned about, basically. You're concerned about height because if you command height, you have view. View gives you awareness. Awareness gives you the ability to undertake informed decision-making against a foe. You're concerned about reach because you want to hold the foe hostage at a distance. Uh, you know, we, we certainly see this uh, with the story of David and Goliath. David didn't grapple with Goliath. It wasn't a manhood issue. He hit him with an aerospace weapon. It was called a rock. Uh, think, of the, think of the English... Uh, 
bowmen at Cressy, for example, they didn't let the French knights ride them down, they hit them at a distance. In fact, then as now, the, the most important figure in the battlefield was the JFAC. In those days, it was the Joint Force Arrow Component Commander. <laughs> and then the other is speed, uh, because speed, and of course, this goes back to Sun Tzu, you know, essence is, the speed is the essence of warfare, blah, blah, blah. You know, if we take a look at this, we see that these are properties that are innate in moving through the air. And these are drivers that we see that really compel people to undertake, first, the development of, of the most easily attainable flight system, the lighter-than-air system. And then secondly, once you have the development of internal combustion technology, the emergence of, of your, your next two systems, one of them being the atmospheric system, the airplane, and the other being the exo-atmospheric system, which is the spacecraft. So that's, uh, it's interesting. I would add, though, that... Uh, Armies, you know, armies tend to be very, very slow in recognizing the value of the air. It goes to the present day, in fact. And you find that you, you are not seeing, not seeing too much of a transformation in military thought compelling people to look to observational systems. In the case of uh, Adair in France, it was a very perceptive minister of defense and a very perceptive chief French military engineer. In the case of Langley, it was uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was a friend of Langley's from the Cosmos Club and who was a maverick figure, but an in a figure who was very much interested in technology and the application of technology. It wasn't coming out of the mainstream military community. In the United Kingdom, if you want to have a very interesting perspective on this, go back and take a look at 1910, 1911, and 1912 editions of the Journal of the Royal Artillery. There's some remarkable articles uh, on how the military, particularly the British Army, will come to grips with, uh, with flying systems. And of course, that, at that time, there's a debate. Should it be balloons? Should it be airships? Should it be this new thing called the airplane? Very interesting business. Your comment on Cody, though, uh, uh, Cody definitely is motivated by the observational interests in military aviation. Thanks very much. I think we're, we're, we're very pushed for time now. Um, uh, the lady over there, and that will be the last one, I'm afraid. Uh, yes, Lee. Thank uh, you. Sylvia Adams, um, historian. Might I get back for a minute, please? There was mention of the bicycle as yes. well as Concord from behind. Um, you, sir, in your lecture, well, no, uh, just now, you made the comment about the Americans going forward with bicycles. May I make a plea for France and Britain as far as bicycles are concerned? There's more to it than that. Thank you. No, actually, actually, you're, you're absolutely correct, and I, I was remiss in that. In fact, I will throw out something. You know, Clement Adair uh, started out as a maker of racing bicycles, and one could argue that he would have had a more successful life had he stuck with that. But anyway, I just point that out. <laughs> right. Thank you very much. I think, sorry, I think we'll, we'll have to, any, any other points that people are trying to make, make them, make them privately over lunch, please. We Thanks know. very much. Thank you very much, Dick. <laughs>